Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and my guest today is Tina Tran. Um, Tina is a veterinarian and educator and um, volunteer leader and all the things. Um, and I wonder, Tina, when you sleep. <laughs> I'm honestly not sure that you question. do. <laughs> and you're a mom. <laughs> like, let's not even talk about that. It's just crazy. I. I am um, just in awe of everything that you do. And we've met online, but very only very briefly in person. So I'm very excited to have this chance to talk to you today. Welcome to Central Line. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I guess I can go into a little bit more of my background to kind of give people some context. Uh, like you mentioned, I'm a veterinarian. Uh, most of my time has in practice has been spent in small animal and shelter medicine. Um, that was probably the first 10 or so years of my um, career. And then as you mentioned, in a moment of sleep deprivation, I uh, decided to apply <laughs> to become a vet tech instructor at a local community college program in Portland, Oregon, and so um, became full-time faculty in that program for a couple of years. was fortunate enough to join the faculty at Purdue University's vet tech program, and so ran their program for about three and a half years, uh, both their online and their uh, on-campus program. And then uh, my husband's job moved us out to Arizona, uh, where we have lived for the last six years. And I went back to doing small animal relief work for some time while our, our two children kind of got accustomed to their new schools. And then um, for almost exactly three years, have been on faculty at University of Arizona's veterinary school, which is one of the newer veterinary schools, uh, what we call distributive model. We don't have a teaching hospital. So my primary role within the college is to help build that network of practices and other veterinary facilities that we send our students to for their four-week rotations during the last 13 months of the of the program. So um, I think with my clinical background and then having some academic background, this is really my sweet spot where I get to use all my skills and then continue to grow. And as you kind of briefly mentioned, I do a lot of things within organized veterinary medicine. So both at the local level within the state, um, but then also kind of on the national level as well. Um, things varying from being on the investigative committee for the Arizona Vet Med Examining Board. So um, having some eyes on um, cases that are being brought to the examining board about licensees, all the way to some of the work I do with the AVMA, which um, I am, I serve as a site visitor for the Council on Education. So um, have helped with accreditation site visits for veterinary schools for, gosh, like almost 10 years. So have, have been fortunate enough to have seen a lot of different models of veterinary education. Um, and so there's just some amazing things going on out there. Um, and a lot of the work I've also done is uh, with the Multicultural Vet Med Association, MCVMA, as a past president and a founding board member. And so there's a piece of me that is always with MCVMA for sure. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> That is a lot. And I feel like just right off the bat, like I definitely want to talk about the distributed model of, of learning um, at, at U of Arizona. And it's really interesting that you've managed to accumulate so much experience through your work with um, accreditation for the AVMA um, that you have, you know, sort of built up this knowledge of how a vet school can be run. And 
now you're at a place that's really doing something different. And I know there's a few schools doing the distributive model now, and um, definitely I want to spend some time talking about that because um, I've seen quite a bit of discussion about that online lately, mm-hmm. and um, and I'd, I'd love to talk about it. But I just also want to say that like you are one of those people who is a testament to if it's important to you, you will figure out a way to get it done <laughs> because there can't be a lot of free time in there. But I, <laughs> I know that... Um, you know, you just from seeing your work online and knowing people who know you, because this is a small world, um, you seem super passionate about so many aspects of the industry. And um, I just love that, you know, you're, uh, you're really a force for change in vet med. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I will say you're correct. I don't have a lot of free time. Um, (laughs) I think one of the things now that I consider myself kind of mid-career that I've been trying to find my way closer to is where that intersection of what I do for my day job, what I do as a volunteer leader, and where all my passions and interests are. Like I'm trying to find that intersection so that I can Mm. have all of those things in one place rather than, like you mentioned, I've got this day job, I have volunteer work that I do, lots of different interests. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to that. Um, I think academia has definitely afforded me some opportunities that are a lot harder to do if you're, you know, on the clinic floor for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, we have a lot of, uh, veterinary professionals on here who don't have traditional clinic jobs. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, one of the reasons they're able to go out and do all these other things, but um, but that's not always the case, and it's not that we don't have full time jobs. You know, it's just a way to sort of impact the industry in a different way. And mm-hmm. um, and what could be more important than working in education? Um, so, but before we started, I just wanted to say one thing, which is um, so we had uh, in trends our our magazine at, at Aha. Um, we have themes every month and, you know, just things, topics that we want to talk about or things we want to make sure are included in the issues. And it's, it's funny because, um, when I contacted you about the podcast, you know, I was just thinking we would just talk at some point. And Mm -hmm. then we realized that, um, one of the themes coming up was we wanted to include some veterinary professionals with an Asian heritage because of a or a Pacific Islander mm-hmm. um, because of one of the theme months that's coming up. And um, I ha- already had you on my list, and I was like, and at the time I was like, well, we have to get this done kind of fast because issues go to print like a lot earlier than they're yeah. going to be actually distributed. And then I was like, well, wait a second. I- I'm Asian. <laughs> like I, I, I totally forgot that that is actually just me. So we actually have an Asian on the podcast like every single week, yeah. but we don't talk about it because I don't think of myself as like, oh, I'm the token Asian like doing this podcast. And why would a guest want to be viewed as the token Asian that comes on the podcast for Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month? And um, and you had said something in your email when I suggested that we talk about, you know, DEIB and your work with the MCVMA. And you were like, well, that's great. You know, I'm happy to talk about that stuff. But I also want to make sure people know that I don't just talk about DEI. And I was really glad that you said that because um, DEI is not a separate topic anyway. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it is very unusual, at least in my experience, to see two veterinary professionals of Asian heritage talking to each other on a podcast. Like we just, there, there just aren't that many of us, um, at least not 
visibly in the profession. Um, and so it's just nice, I think, to be able to say, here we are, and this is just what we do. And now we can talk about something else <laughs> if <Yeah>. we want to. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that brings to mind the intersection of the MCVMA and your work in DEI with all of the other things that you do. Like, before we go into all the other things, how does that work inform everything else you do? Yeah, so I think that's a, a great uh, jumping off point, Katie. I think for me, part of it is the recognition that DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, find its way, quite honestly, in every part of veterinary medicine and outside of veterinary medicine. It may just not look exactly the same in every instance. You know, like mm -hmm. if you think about... Um, client compliance, the conversation around what is it that, you know, what are those communications that you're having with an owner? Some of that actually is involved with, you know, you have to consider the fact of like access, like do they have the ability to do the things that you're asking them to do as a veterinarian, as a technician? If you're saying you need to be able to give this medication in your dog's eyes, uh, you know, every three hours or every two hours for the next however many days, and they're just like, well, I don't know how I'm supposed to do that because I work a job, you know, that is an hour away from where my pet is and I don't have somebody to come in and do those treatments every two hours. So, you know, so and then, you know, like me, when I was very young in the profession, I thought, well, why are they not complying? Why are they just, you know, like flat out ignoring me? And it wasn't until I started to ask some questions or that the owners felt comfortable enough to share with me what their challenges were around the fact that they didn't have access to, you know, be able to do those things. Because I was working under the assumption that, well, if you want your dog's eyes to get better, then you need to do this. But I didn't think about the fact that they don't have the ability to go home every two hours to do that. Or in some cases, they physically can't do that. Like you have elderly owners that are not able to, um, you know, manipulate their hands so that they or manipulate the dog's eyes or restrain them in order to do those things. Um, and then I also think in terms of, you know, when I came into the profession, I didn't have kids. And then it was like probably three or four years into the profession, we started to we started our family. And it gave me a whole new perspective of when families come as as owners to say, oh, now I see why maybe you didn't comply because you have, you know, three, you know, people running around in your home that are under <laughs> the age of six. And so you have to care for them first. I get that. Now I get that because now I'm a parent and I understand like free time yeah. is a luxury. Nap time is a luxury. And sometimes your priorities shift and it's not like an intentional, I don't care about my pet but it's just a matter of, you know, you have a limited amount of time. And so you have to decide, you know, what takes precedence. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities where we talk about DEIB, um, but it's maybe it doesn't sound like that, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think the most common places that you hear talked about is around um, recruiting, around retention, about, uh, you know, kind of how are you creating that workplace culture, but there's definitely pieces that are DEIB that are outside of that. And that's part of the, the conversation that I have a lot of times with our students at Arizona is the fact that they are um, oftentimes impacted by the, the culture of the hospital that they're in and their understanding around equity, um, their understanding around bias specifically. I think that is something that weighs very heavily both with them and with ourselves to say, you know, if they're being evaluated by people that 
aren't considering what their biases are, you know, are they being um, potentially uh, put at a disadvantage if the person that is evaluating them um, is not familiar with our program and so is now making assumptions about our program or looks at them physically and is making assumptions about their knowledge and their skills. Um, you know, and I think bias is something that I definitely have that conversation in veterinary conferences. Um, and then also with our, um, our veterinarians that are working with our students out in practices to say, you know, this is kind of how bias shows up. It's a very natural thing to try to make, make, uh, order out of all the pieces of information coming in. And so that is oftentimes based on your previous experiences. And so, you know, if your previous experiences did not involve people of different races and ethnicities, or, you know, very limited, then that's kind of what you're basing it on. And sometimes there's, um, you know, harm that's caused in that in the evaluation process and in the way that you give feedback to people and and those types of things um, and the assumptions that can sometimes be made. So, sorry, that was like a really long way to describe how bias and DEIB finds its way into, you know, um, kind of the educational system, at least specifically within vet med. I think that's so great, though. Like what you said, it, it, it really resonates because a lot of people think like, oh, DEIB is about other people. You know, if you're in the the if you have certain privilege and you are learning about people whose lived experience is different from yours, then you think, okay, DEIB is learning about other people. But we all ha- know the feeling of not belonging somewhere, mm-hmm. um, and it or of not being treated like we're understood and we're heard, and that is very hard. And one of the things that the focus on DEIB does, I feel like, is is make us more empathetic to other people's experience, whether it's somebody who can't get down on the floor and pill their dog, Mm -hmm. or somebody who is a single mom and has kids at home and just can't do another thing. Yeah, you know, that week. Um, And, and that is a really good point, because um, that's one of the reasons why I'm really glad to see um, so many DEIB conversations. But I really hope that those tracks aren't always separate, that there's more talks about the integration of all those things um, versus just sort of expecting people to draw those correlations themselves. Because it is very hard when we are all, we all have unconscious bias of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, what, and I love too that there are, there are online workshops that you can do now. Um, like mm-hmm. I just took the Brave Space certification um, through the AVMA, and that was really cool. There was a really good talk on unconscious bias in there with um, Lisa Greenhill that I thought yep. was, was super helpful. Um, so do you feel like, you know, based on what you had mentioned in your email, do you feel like people sort of zoom in on you to talk about DEIB a lot and forget that you can talk about other things? <laughs> like, do, um, do you feel sort of pigeonholed? You know, I used to feel that way, particularly when I was still on the board for the Multicultural Vet Med Association. I think just because of association, right? They know that I'm, you know, uh, an officer. And so they just assume like that's my identity. And so Mm -hmm. they're like, so Tina, can you come talk to us about X, Y, and Z around DEI? And it's like, I can. And I can also talk to you about telemedicine. I can talk to you about non-clinical careers. I can talk to you about vet tech utilization. I can talk to you about what the current state of veterinary education looks like. Um, and, and those things oftentimes do have some intersection with DEI, you know, like when you think about access to care, spectrum of care, um, 
again, how we're evaluating, how we're mentoring students, how we're bringing people into the pipeline, um, you know, pre-vets and vet techs, et cetera. Um, so I think when I was specifically still on the board at MCVMA, I was more attuned to it. And I made a conscious decision when I rolled off the board in 2022 to say, okay, this organization is a great organization. There are There's a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise around DEI specifically um, to do speaking, to do those things, to educate others. I don't know that I need to tap into that. I mean, I can refer people back to MCVMA and I'm fine with that. If they still want me to talk about DEI, I'm happy to do it. And I can also talk about other things because I think that's the other part of it is that uh, when I talk about telemedicine, when I talk about telehealth, there is an aspect of DEI that comes up. Just like when you talk even about like non-clinical careers is the fact that Mm -hmm. part of the reason people are attracted to it is that there offers the flexibility of being off the clinic floor that you can still use your clinically sharp mind, even if maybe temporarily or permanently you are physically unable to be on the floor, you can still be interacting and, and being, you know, having this meaningful contribution to the profession and helping owners. Um, You don't necessarily have to be in the clinic to do that. And I think that for some people, uh, you know, that's that's the way they continue to stay in the profession is, yeah, I can be I can do telehealth chats from home. I can, you Mm -hmm. know, while I'm, um, you know, recovering from my broken leg, I can do this at home. And then once I'm better, I can go back to doing ambulatory work. I can, you know, kind of switch back to what I was doing before. And so, you know, and what's really interesting, too, is like when we think about the workforce crisis. So I don't know how many times I've had veterinarians um, try to recruit me when I'm trying to get them into our network of hospitals for clinical rotations. They're trying to recruit me to come. And they're just not even saying full time. They're saying, Tina, just do a shift, like literally just do one Saturday, please. You know, yeah. and they're struggling to find um, associate veterinarians. You know, they're not getting any hits on their job ads or anything. And yet, when I talk to telehealth companies and telemedicine companies and vet med, they are getting unsolicited resumes on a daily basis. Like there is no job rec out there. And, and yet people, technicians and veterinarians are saying, I would like to work for you. Um, it, I mean, yeah. it, you know, so then it kind of makes you think like if there's a demand both on the pet owner side that we need to provide more care and more access. And there's also a demand from the veterinary side to say, as professionals, we also want to work in this area. It kind of just makes me wonder, I mean, like, we're not going to shift everybody to telehealth, telemedicine, but, you know, there's, there's clearly a demand and a want. And so how can we support people um, so that they can continue to stay in the profession in the way that is that best suits them? So... Yeah, I, I love that. And and while you were talking, I was thinking about um, we had Sharice Roth on, who's also involved in the MCVMA, and um, she had a really uh, we had a cool conversation where she was talking about telehealth as part of access to care. So mm-hmm. providing flexibility for the veterinarian or veterinary professional who's providing the service for sure, and also providing services to people who cannot make it into the clinic for whatever reason or can't seek timely veterinary help, or maybe don't even know that they need to bring the pet to the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was also saying that that's a way for people to see that, you know, to be face to face with a veterinarian who may 
look more like them or remind them of themselves in some way or be able to identify with them with with them in some way, like being a parent and mm-hmm. understanding that they can't come into the clinic at the drop of a hat, like on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's a really cool aspect of telehealth that we, we hopefully will be talking about more um, in the industry as a method of access to care and not just, um, just staff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering something uh, with the, the, distributive model of veterinary education where you don't have a teaching hospital and you send students out into the world at these to these um, clinics that approve you've approved mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. will mentor them and treat them like they're on a clinical rotation and let them perform um, you know duties like placing catheters and assisting in surgeries and stuff like that and I was actually wondering while we're on this subject if students can choose hospitals where, say a student is black and they want to go to a hospital where they're not going to be the only black person. Is there a way that you sort of provide guidance for workplace education like that? Or is that sort of a, a roll of the dice? Um, so I guess we don't have a formalized system where, you know, students can search for uh, people that have similar identities at the practice as well regarding race and ethnicity, um, or even gender identity, you know, like those Mm -hmm. things are not searchable within our database. I don't know that they're searchable in most databases. I want to say there's at least one vet school where you could actually search for something along the lines of race and ethnicity, if that was uh, a priority for a student. Um, So while we don't have a formalized way to do it, I have been fortunate enough to build my network over time. And so I know that within our network, there are veterinarians and technicians at some of these hospitals that um, are BIPOC, that are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so in those instances, and and Arizona is a perfect example, we have more than, in every class of students, we have more than 30% that identify as underrepresented in veterinary medicine with with respect to race and ethnicity. And so in those instances, I've had individual students reach out to me and ask, you know, because this is one of the things that they have concerns around. And and they, they also want to see representation. They want to be able to be um, in community and mentored by somebody who looks like them. Um, yeah. And so that I've had individual conversations with students about that. And I've had pre-veterinary students that have come to me that if I know that that is one of their interests, then I will do my best to pair them with um, someone of a similar race or ethnicity. Um, that being said, there's an interesting conversation around the idea that does a mentor have to look like you? Like, because I think to a certain extent that can be misleading and in the worst case, like harmful, because just because you and I are Asian does not mean that we approach things the same, does not mean that we have the same, that we align around DEI, Um, you know? Right. So there can be a little bit like, and I think that's where it gets a little bit tricky to make this database that says, I want to see who all the black veterinarians are, because at the end of the day, that doesn't really like that, 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 that won't necessarily help a student because if they get into a situation where they're being microaggressed and they turn to the black veterinarian, the black veterinarian might be like, just, you know, what's, what's the problem? Like they might it's actually, just upper lip. Them. 
Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And, you know, when I asked that question, I was thinking about being, you know, say I went to a hospital where I was the only person who identified as female. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it would be hard for me, I think, to focus on my education if I felt like everyone was looking at me as a representative of, of an entire community because they're not used to seeing somebody like me. And so I was thinking about it more from that point of view versus a mentor, but obviously having a mentor who understands that your experience might be different um, because of your background um, or how you identify is helpful. But you're right. Like in that case, it, we can't assume based on how someone looks that they're going to understand that. Yeah. Um, and that their views are going to align with yours, yes. whether it's around uh, commonalities around gender identity or race and ethnicity. Um, you know, cause I, I, I'm, I'm sure that there's a population of women veterinarians that will tell you that they went into a practice where there was another women, woman veterinarian and that person did not support them. Yeah. Um, you know, the way that they needed to be supported. And so I think at the end of the day, yes, it's represent- representation is important. Um, and there are other things that are also important in order to support a student in that clinical uh, setting. Um, so, yes. So the long answer was that we don't have a formal process for searching. I have some Which concerns around good. doing that. <laughs> However, I also have the ability to connect students and pre-veterinary as well if they want to find a mentor that um, shares some of the same identities as they, as they do. All right. Thank you. Um, I, I'm going to bring up a question that I've seen asked online, or I should say observations that I've seen made online that I feel like are probably not accurate and people basing them – like I – I did. I went through clinics at Cornell, um, and I we had a lot of students from Ross mm-hmm. on clinics with us, and they were like they like wiped the floor with us in a lot of ways <laughs> because we had had almost no surgical experience and they had had a ton. Oh, yeah. They mm-hmm. were quizzed on differentials and they knew like lists of everything you know that that could be behind a certain presenting case, and we didn't because we had case based learning, and so we we looked everything up. Um, and talked about it a lot, which has its own advantages. But I often felt like I was behind the eight ball when I was with them on rotations because they were just so smart and like had so much in their brains already. And um, but I also know that people had certain misconceptions about Ross that they thought they weren't going to be as good, and so they mm-hmm. they definitely proved them wrong just by being who they were. But um, I've seen similar discussions where people feel like you can't get a consistent education, you can't get the same level of education in a distributive model where you are going out into real world clinics and not at a teaching hospital. And I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on that and like what you see that says otherwise. Yeah, no. So I think that is a point of contention, I think, um, you know, within veterinary education is that we're seeing kind of this um, rise in the number of distributive model schools, right? Between, you know, started out with Western U and then we see different versions of it, like at Calgary and then Lincoln Memorial, Long Island, Texas Tech, like Arizona, Midwestern, like there's a bunch of schools and there are more coming online in the next few years that will also follow distributive model. I guess one of the things I will point out is if you think about it, vet tech education is oftentimes utilizing the distributive model, and they have been from the jump. 
there are very few instances where vet tech students are actually working in a teaching hospital as part of their education. Obviously, Purdue being one of the examples of that exception, as well as uh, Michigan State and a few others. But if you like, and that's why I thought it was really interesting when I came to, uh, you know, the, a DVM program as faculty and people said, oh, no, this can't happen. We can't let people out into practices and learning. They can't learn stuff. And I'm like, but we do it for vet tech students all the time. I don't understand. So are you saying like they don't learn anything? Um, so I, I think, and I can only speak for our model, the way that we do distributive is that yes, there are opportunities for the students to learn in general practice and shelter. And there's also opportunities for them to learn in specialty settings and specialty settings alongside boarded specialists, internists, orthopedic surgeons, um, equine internists, you name it. And so my, my, the way I, I, I always encourage the students, if, even if they think they know what they want to do, because that always changes, is get a breadth of experience. You know, do some small animal, do some large and mixed, do some GP, some shelter, some specialty. Um, maybe try one or two, like what I call no thank you bites, which is you're pretty sure you don't like exotics. <laughs> and so you're like, tr you've been trying to stay away from it this whole time. But maybe you go to a clinic that isn't 100% exotics, but they, they have one veterinarian that sees all the birds or one veterinarian that sees all the reptiles. So then you can kind of dip your toes in and then you can say for certain whether or not you do or don't like exotics. Cause I do get kind of a little bit soapboxy with students that are like, I'm doing small animal. I don't want to do any equine, no large animal, nothing. Like I'm not doing any of it, Dr. Tran. And I'm like, but are you sure? Because how do you even know? Maybe there's, there's a piece of large animal that you haven't experienced that is like your jam. And so, you know, do the no thank you bite when it's a it's a four week rotation. It's not a job. You're not signing a contract saying I'm working here. I'm moving here indefinitely. Like it's four weeks. So um, and I have had some of the students because they were adamant. They're like, I don't want to do shelter medicine. I don't like anything about shelter medicine. And I'm like, have you done anything in shelter medicine? Like, have you volunteered? Have you worked? No, I just know that I'm not going to like it. And, and yet they come back from either Arizona Humane, where all of our students go for their rotation, or they go to other shelters um, and animal welfare organizations. And then they come back saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea how amazing shelter medicine is. I think I'm going to be a shelter medicine veterinarian. And I'm like, see, the no thank you bite is a good thing. <laughs> if you're a fan of Central Line, there's a good chance you're a super fan of vet med. Well, I've got big news. AhaCon, the ultimate event for veterinary superfans, is coming to San Diego, the home of the con, this September. Level up your skills, knowledge, and connection with more medical and scientific tracks, a killer keynote, and interactive learning experiences for the entire veterinary team. Early bird registration is open now. Visit aha.org slash ahacon. That's aha.org slash A-A-H-A-C-O-N to learn more and save your spot. Yeah, I, I could say the ambulatory rotations I went on were mine. Uh, they were required that we had to do ambulatory rotations, but they definitely convinced me that I did not want to do um, farm animal medicine at all. <laughs> like I was good if I never saw another pig. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a good experience and I was done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and but um, I, I think that's the same. Like I, you know, obviously... Uh, particularly in a teaching hospital setting, oftentimes there are a lot more required rotations you have to complete. Yeah. And then, you know, 
I, th I think, that, and that's one of the real benefits of being in our distributive model is the students, we don't track them per se, but they have the ability to make decisions about, do you want to spend more time in small? Do you want to spend more time in large or with equine? Or do you want to try a research uh, rotation or something like that? And it gives them the flexibility to pursue um, uh, the types of rotations that they think are going to be most meaningful for their education. Um, within guardrails, obviously, because they have to be within mm -hmm. our network. And we have already had conversation with whoever's going to be on site with them, that type of thing. Um, so I guess the long, the long winded way of answering your question, Katie, is I'm not going to doubt that there are some practices that are not necessarily the best practices to send students to. The other thing to keep in mind is that all of the distributive models have some checks and balances in place to say, here's what our expectations are for you to be a practice that is in our network. And here's how we're going to check in and look at feedback from the students, consider what our communications are, have been like, um, all those things to decide moving forward if you stay in the rotate in, in the network or not. So we do have, you know, some quality assurance and, and quality checks that are going on as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I ultimately, and I've had this conversation with people recently, I think ultimately I see probably the best scenario is some hybrid of some amount of time in that last year being spent in a teaching hospital setting so they can see what it looks like to be in a tertiary setting with multiple services and that they have a certain amount of time that they can do either externships or rotations that are off campus. Um, you know, I think that that finding that balance could actually solve quite a few problems because I think one of the struggles we see in veterinary education is that some students feel like they're hamstrung, like they have to be at the teaching hospital because they need people, like they need people to manage mm -hmm. cases. They need people to, you know, do all the things. And arguably, is that the best use of their time? I don't know. I mean, I think it depends. Um, but could they do that for part of the year? And then have another group of students, like could they partner with like a University of Arizona, have their students come in for another part of the year. So that relieves, you know, their their own students to go and do externships, et cetera. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm just throwing that out there in case any schools want to partner with the University of Arizona. <laughs> I haven't run it past my dean yet, so that might not be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> she seems cool, though. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that's really neat. I um, like I'm one of those people who loved clinics which is ironic, right? Because I'm like not working in the clinic at all right now. <laughs> I loved I loved school and I loved clinics. And yeah. clinics actually <sighs> saved me a couple of times when I was going through a bad time personally. And I just loved like being able to go to the hospital and just like do my work and mm -hmm. be surrounded by people doing the work too. But I also know that not all of my classes like that, like not everybody thrived in that environment. And then when I got out into practice, it was a little bit of a shock because, you know, you can't just like go around the corner and be like, Hey, Derm, can you look at this? Like, no, Derm could not look at it. I was Derm. You were Derm. <laughs> I was Derm. Yes. <laughs> like in general practice in upstate New York, you are always Derm. Um, and I, uh, I missed it. You know, and I didn't want to do an internship and in residency. Um, I wanted to just like get out and live my life because I was a little bit older when I went to vet school and I just didn't want to do that. But I missed the teaching atmosphere. Um, but I could have used more time in a different atmosphere where I learned different ways to do things and that like not everybody was going to draw blood the same way and not mm -hmm. everybody was going to do this procedure or set up for this the same way. And um, that would have probably lessened the shock. 
of launch. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think one of the things that uh, I, I know our model does at Arizona, which I think is fantastic, is um, we have a, a, a group of veterinarians that are called clinical year mentors. And essentially, they are remote veterinarians that have multiple years of practice, oftentimes um, are either boarded or have gone through internship residency, um, and oftentimes are very active in organized veterinary medicine that serve as kind of the another layer of support for our students when they're in rotation. So they've got their on-site veterinarian who is serving as their physical mentor when they're in the clinic setting. Then they've got us at the college uh, full-time supporting them, doing all the administrative work as well. And then to have these clinical year mentors has been really great because what it does is it gives them a sounding board to say, okay, Dr. Berlin, I don't know if this is okay, but I saw one of the doctors doing X today, or they pulled this drug off the shelf. And I don't think that's what would have been my first choice. And so these clinical year mentors, because they have lots of practice experience and because they, they wanted to do this position because they love to mentor, is having is helping to reinforce this idea that there's not one way to do everything and, um, and is also validating some of their concerns and also serves as the advocate for the student if they're in these challenging situations where they can't, they don't necessarily feel comfortable to ask that on-site veterinarian or to address it directly with them, that they can uh, use the clinical year mentor as a sounding board to say, here's my challenge. I'm kind of at a loss as to how to move forward. And not to say like they're going to take it and run with it, but that they oftentimes will say, well, what have you tried to do? And have you tried this? Because at the end of the day, we need to teach our students how to manage conflict. Um, yeah. And so the, these clinical year mentors have served a tr as a tremendous support for the students as well as for the college because times 110 students, that's a lot of work. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if I had it, you know, I, I, so I was in charge of that search where we hired probably about 35 or so veterinarians to do this. I could not even imagine, like I had no idea so many people wanted to do this part-time. So I love that. Yeah. And they love it. They love it. They're, you know, they're, they're re-upping. They want to keep doing it. They're like, can I have more students? And I'm just like, wow, okay, this is great. So that's um, really encouraging. That makes me feel very hopeful. <laughs> yeah. But they're, they're, they're really serving as, um, you know, I, I mean, I wish I had that. I wish I had that when I was in yeah. clinics. I wish I had that in my first couple of jobs to say, is this okay? Like, that's not how I learned it at school or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just, just somebody to, to help, to help uh, level set a little bit. So when the students graduate, can, they can still reach out to their mentor. Yeah. In fact, sometimes uh, the students don't have the same mentor throughout the year. So there, there is some changing uh, of who their assigned mentor is. And so some of them, I know, like once they get switch to somebody else, they're still having conversations with their previous mentor. And I have no doubt in my mind that they will likely continue to to stay in contact with some of these mentors once they graduate because, you know, I mean, you click with somebody and, you yeah. know, just because you're not assigned to them anymore doesn't mean you're not going to continue to learn and grow with them. So, um, and I think a lot of them are very vested in in the success of each each student. They they really want them to get a lot out of clinics, and they want to help them transition into being a veterinarian. And um, it's really, I mean, it's it's really amazing to see how much um, passion the clinical year mentors have around uh, their role within the college. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, I would have loved, I would have really liked to have somebody like that too. <laughs> um, when the, the person who coded me at our white coat ceremony um, was just a lovely person, um, Araceli Lucio Forrester, um, but she was parasitologist um, and not, you know, in small animal general practice, which is where I was destined to spend the next, you know, more than a decade after graduation. And um, so while she was lovely, she wasn't a person that I was going to call like from, you know, the treatment room in my practice, like, because I'm like, freaked out by something that happened, or I need encouragement, or I'm like, they told me to do this. And then they all went to lunch, and I don't know what to do. You know, like, (laughs) somebody like that would have been amazing. Um, And also just those nights where you're just like, did I do the right thing? Yeah, like, um, yeah. cause there were a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a very common thing for, uh, our veterinary students to feel so they put so much pressure on themselves to be perfect and to know everything yeah. and to don't know how to do the right thing in every situation. And one of the things I tell them is, you know, I don't want to burst your bubble, but veterinary school is actually more about learning how to learn and how to communicate yeah. with people. It's not really about, you're not going to graduate because our program is a three-year program. You're not going to graduate in three years and know everything. I graduated yeah. more than 20 years ago from a four-year program and I still don't know everything. In fact, I've probably yeah. forgotten a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I they probably don't know a lot more than me. Like I don't use it, so I just forget. <laughs> like, like, I, only, I only have so right? much room in here. So, um, it's like I said, the last time I thought about a pig disease was boards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. there's the, the, the diamond, the black diamond. The diamonds, yeah. Um, yep. bricks or something. Uh, yep, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I even took a swine class because it was a fun class, but like we saw some very disturbing videos. I didn't eat pork for like a year and a half. Anyway. Oh yeah, that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, that partly answers the question I was going to ask you that they have a clinical mentor who's kind of helping them get through tough situations, maybe sticky situations mm-hmm. during those rotations where they're encountering a huge diversity of people and attitudes and ways that people talk to each other and manage things. Yeah. Um, do you feel like that gives the students a leg up when they get out of school that they have more experience dealing with a bunch of different environments versus the teaching hospital people like me who are like, well, at Cornell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess uh, it's TBD is what I'll say because we haven't graduated Mm. our first class yet. So it's still, that's right. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I think that it will, because I think that our students have had more opportunities to navigate those difficult conversations. Um, because mm-hmm. I think oftentimes, you know, and I was in a teaching hospital setting. Um, oftentimes, if you don't get along with somebody, you don't really have a choice. You have to stay on that rotation. There's not like another derm rotation you can go to. Right. Nothing against Dr. Campbell. She's fantastic at, at, at <laughs> Illinois. I love derm. But, you know, like there's no other choice for you. You have to either grin and bear it or try to figure a way around it. But, you know, because of the power differential that happens between student and clinician, oftentimes the students just kind of say like, well, I guess I'll just grin and bear it for the next few weeks. Um, I think that the students in in our model, the distributed model, they well, they, they do have some flexibility to move to another site if it's an extreme circumstance. But we always, and this is where I think the clinical year mentors are important, we always try to get the students to resolve whatever conflict is going on um, because I think it that part really sets them up well to handle not only what it is like to be a veterinarian, but just real life. I mean, mm-hmm. conflict happens on a daily basis. And if you're conflict avoided, which 
a lot of the veterinary profession is, that doesn't serve you well, because especially when we're in a workforce crisis, if you don't like it at practice A, then what's to keep you to, from going other than maybe a non-compete? What's, what's to keep you from going to practice B down the road and saying, you know what, so-and-so microaggressed me. I don't want to deal with it. You know, I'm just going to go down the street and I'm not going to tell them why I'm, I'm just going to leave that environment the way it is. And I'm going to go to this other one, hoping that it'll be better. And it may or may not be better. Um, so I think sometimes our students are able to navigate those conversations better because they are getting a lot more encouragement from the faculty, from the clinical year team, from the clinical year mentors to go back and say, well, what have you tried to do? And, you know, uh, and here's maybe some suggestions for how you can navigate that conversation. And if it's still not working, then let's let's figure out what we need to do as far as next steps, because we do have the flexibility to move people if we need to. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I was going to ask you how much the school actually intervenes, you know, if somebody's in an uncomfortable situation or feels like the workplace is toxic, you know. We're working so hard on that in the profession to talk about what creates workplace toxicity. And so much of that depends on management. And the student is probably going to have very little um, influence there. Um, but I would imagine that the school tries not to get involved unless it's absolutely necessary because it's not really the school's business, right? Um, yeah. How the practice is run as long as it's up to the standard in terms mm -hmm. of teaching. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a tough balance. But I mean, clinics like I was witness to many toxic interactions in clinics, too. It's not like a teaching hospital is exempt from that. And it's probably even harder to get out of that situation if that's the culture there. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, because and the other thing that is can sometimes be more challenging in a teaching hospital setting is most of those clinicians and technicians know each other. And yeah. so, you know, Whereas like if you don't have a great rotation for four weeks, chances are the next one you're going to, they probably don't. They're not going to yeah. know where you came from unless you tell them. And, right. you know, they're not going to put two and two together. So, you know, you, you can essentially start fresh for the next four weeks yeah. and and, yeah. decide, and determine for yourself, how do I want to approach this? What would I do differently? What would I do the same? You know, um, and I think sometimes the way teaching hospitals are set up is that, you know, your reputation will oftentimes precede you either as a class or as an individual. So for sure. Yeah. yeah, both was, yeah, was definitely the case. And I remember I'd saying something stupid in rounds, you know, once in a while and being like, oh my God, now everybody in this hospital is going to think I'm stupid. And it's not totally off the mark, right? Like everybody talks and they're like, oh my God, you have that rotate, you know, you have yeah. that group now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. Um, I'm thankful to have had a good experience, but I can definitely see the advantages of a program where each four weeks is like a fresh start. Yeah. Um, and I guess the yeah. other thing I'll add to really quickly, Katie, about the, the, the distributive model is those practices are opting in. Like we are mm. not forcing them to take students. Like they have, they have yeah. had conversation with us to say, this is, these are our expectations of what's happening in four weeks. You know, they get to decide which rotations they want to have students. They get to decide what's the maximum number of students we could host in any one rotation. They have a lot of say in, in in that part of it. But at the end of the day, we're not like forcibly putting people into our network. Like somebody at that practice said they wanted to host students. And oftentimes yeah. it is the associate veterinarian or the practice owner who's a veterinarian saying, we love teaching. We want to have students there. You know, 
so I think that's the other thing to think about too, is like people mm. think that we're like forcing practices to join. It's like, no, you don't have to join if you don't want to. I mean, yeah. I think it's a huge way to recruit and to kind of, you know, see if test your chops a little bit on what's like the latest and greatest. Um, and I think a lot of the veterinarians love it. They love the opportunity to, to influence that next generation of veterinarians and to, to kind of mm. up close to some of their soon to be colleagues. Um, I think that that's really, you know, I think that that's a way to keep them on their toes and to keep them really excited about being in the profession too. So I think that's something to keep in mind because that's not necessarily what happens in a teaching hospital because <laughs> that's true kind of there. And PS, you have to, you know, have all these students come through rotation, whether you like it or not. So, right. <laughs> you want to get your board certification. This is what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. There's a certain number um, of students you have to teach interns, residents, the whole thing. So, um, yeah. 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 I'm remembering a, my surgery rotation, um, one of them, we, you know, we, like I said, Cornell students, at least at, the, at that time in 2008 or whenever that was, we didn't get a ton of surgery experience. And mm -hmm. so this was, uh, I was on call the night before we had to do our first dog spays, I believe. And um, so I was up all night with a back dog. Mm, right. <laughs> and when I got to rounds the next morning without having gone home, everyone had chosen their surgery dogs for the day. And mine was Nikita. Oh. It was like... It should never have been let into the student's spay program. It was like a one-and-a-half-year-old Akita. It was massive. And I was like, oh, my God. And it definitely um, was not an easy surgery. Like, you know, I probably strummed that ligament for, like, an hour. And there was bleeding. And the people who were in surgery with us, like, watching us were the interns who had barely done any surgeries themselves. And so they actually – I had the distinction of having the chief of surgery scrub in with me on my spay. Oh, they assisted Because it was bleeding. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> so he came in and he comes with cautery. So it was that was nice. Like when you get the chief of surgery, you also get cautery. Um, but it was a bit scarring. And like, I wonder, you know, in a in a clinic situation where it's like an owned dog and there's a veterinarian who's done a five billion spays standing next to you versus an intern who's done maybe like one more than I had. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would it have been... A slightly different situation in terms of like my experience and what I took away from that, which was I don't want to spay big dogs ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it can traumatize you when you have that really scary yeah. experience early on. Um, and I would agree. I think that's one of the things, you know, I don't and I don't want to bag on teaching hospitals because there's a lot of great no. people in teaching hospitals. There's a lot of great learning that happens in that environment. And it's a mm -hmm. necessary part of our profession. Certainly. But I also perfect. think that's and <laughs> And there's also great distributive model examples. And, yeah. um, you know, and when I think about the fact that a large majority of graduates find their way into general practice, at least initially, then it makes sense to give them significant amounts of time in general practice um, so they can see, like, here's how this person approaches a spay. Here's how this person approaches a spay. Mm -hmm. um, plus, you'll probably get more opportunities to do spays. Like, I didn't get to, so I did actually two small animal surgery rotations when I was uh, a senior because for some strange reason, I thought I was going to be a surgeon at some point. 
And I I don't even think a board insertion. I just wanted, I thought like since I had played piano a lot growing up that I'd be really, and I was really good at (laughs) hand-eye coordination with Atari, that I would be really good at surgery. Like this is what I had told myself, Katie. I'm like, oh, I should do surgery because I bet you I'm really good at it. And um, so straight out the gate, that was my first rotation. And I I watched a lot of surgeries. I watched a lot of super complicated surgeries that I then had to write up, but I didn't actually scrub in on a lot. Not that I remember. And I certainly didn't have an opportunity to do any elective procedures as a primary surgeon during either of those blocks. Um, So whereas if you went into general practice, even a typical general practice, if the student is ready to do, we have students that are primary surgeon, not just in a shelter setting, but in general practices, they are, they are Mm -hmm. the ones coming. In fact, in fact, um, in block one, it, an unfortunate incident happened where my own dog got into a fight with a dog at the dog park. I know I shouldn't have brought him to the dog park. I did it. <laughs> I did it. And I, I should know better. And so he got kind of bit in, in his flank area. And despite my best efforts for home care, it didn't turn out too well. So then I was like, okay, I got to take him into like an ER or something to, to get him fixed up. He, I mean, it was a minor laceration repair, but it just was looking ugly. And so um, I brought him to one of our network hospitals and, um, and it just so happened that one of our students was there and I knew who she was. And I also knew that she was really passionate about surgery specifically. Like she wants to be boarded in small animal surgery and equine surgery. And oh my so God. <laughs> I know I was just like, hmm, that's a lot of time. So, <laughs> so I showed up and, you know, with my dog and they did the initial exam and stuff. And I told the student, I said, just so you know, I am perfectly fine with you doing this surgery. It's a laceration repair. I know you can do it. And so if you want to do it, I am okay with you being the primary surgeon. Just know that. And, and so she was, I mean, obviously she was directly supervised, but she did a great job. I showed her the post-op pictures like a couple weeks out. It's possible. I did the suture removal at home, but that's fine. Um, (laughs) I'm a licensed professional. And I was like, it was so, it was so like full circle, like this idea of we had created this network. We had built these relationships with hospitals. We had assigned students to rotations. And then here you are in block one and your own student, it's like giving me goosebumps. My own student cut my dog, like did the surgery to repair my dog. And my dog did great, you know? And that probably is going to go with her for the rest of her life that you trusted her to do that. Like talk about a confidence builder. I mean, I know it was just a laceration. You weren't like asking her to, you know, take out a kidney or something, but like still um, that confidence, just you in particular saying FYI, like without being asked, like you can do this. Yeah. I am. I trust you to do this. Like that is the difference sometimes between somebody going forward with their dream and not. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine if you had come in and it would have been the opposite scenario. Like that would have been super discouraging for her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I would never I, have I done that to that. any of my students. Like, yeah, but somebody would. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Somebody would. <laughs> but I, I just I, I think about that a lot. And I'm, you know, because obviously none of that was planned, but just the fact mm-hmm. that it happened and it was somebody I knew and trusted and, and yeah. she had an interest. And I was like, this is this is like fantastic. I mean, this is what distributed model is like I mean she's in a workplace setting she's getting to do the surgery she's showing off her skills I'm sure she got a job offer from that place I know she got a job offer from that place yeah so she couldn't do it because she has 12 years of residency to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah well 
that there's that little piece. So, um, but yeah, so it is super exciting to see our students thriving in that environment. And is it perfect in every scenario? No, but you know, I don't think that's exclusive to a distributive model. I think that that is a challenge in clinical education in general. So, yeah. um, but I, I enjoy it. It is for me also the best, like what I consider the best part of veterinary school is that clinical education, that kind of like being yeah. the doctor before it's your license mm-hmm. on the line and having that support and that um, safety bubble is is fantastic. So I, yeah. I really enjoy it. And um, I've enjoyed watching our students grow and learn and, and being able to celebrate with them has been I mean, that is just like the thing that keeps you going, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, because of all the buckets that you um, draw from in your life, personal life, professional life, like, do you have anything that you really want people to know? Well, I do want to, because I actually looked something up. So I think one of the questions you asked me about was, is there something like that you would want to put on a post-it note Yes. on the mirror of every, uh, you know, vet student and vet tech uh, yep. bathroom mirror or something like that. And so I... So they see it when they wake up in the morning. Yes. Yeah. And so there is something I think about a lot. I So I'm a big Winnie the Pooh fan, like the classic Winnie the Pooh, A.A. A. Yeah. Milne. And so one of the things, it's like a partial quote, but what I really... I think what I want to leave everybody with is one of those quotes, which is, you are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. Because that there is some version of that that I tell my students, you know, on a regular basis when they're doubting their abilities, when they're feeling scared. Um, and the same thing with new grads, and, and quite honestly, anyone who's in the profession, there you have these moments of doubt, and just realize, like, you can do it. You can do it. You might not be able to do it alone all the time, but you can do it. So I love that. Yeah. Maybe I should put that on my bathroom mirror. <laughs> I probably could have used that before that dog spay and definitely after. Yes. <laughs> that dog spay. I hear big dog spays are not fun. So. No, I ended up, I did end up doing them, but finally I did draw the line at some point. I was like, you know what? I don't want to do these anymore. So I didn't. <laughs> so they were just, it was, it was I was, maybe not braver than I thought (laughs) when it came to those, but, um, we all have choices, but I love that. And, um, and I, I think there's so much rich stuff that you said. I hope people get something out of it when they're listening to you, just not just vet students and mentors, um, or prospective mentors, but people who feel maybe down about the profession and the future of vet med in general, like it makes me feel really hopeful to know that there are so many people out in practice who love it Mm-hmm. enough to want to invite vet students in and nurture the next generation like that alone I think is super encouraging and exciting so um, I really appreciate your time today Tina yeah it was great thank you for having me on and um, yeah I, I hope that people take away some of this information and, and maybe we'll have some more people join our network of hospitals that would be great <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'll put some information about the U of Arizona program in our show notes. Um, and if they're interested, they can always contact me and I can get them in touch with you. Okay. Um, and we didn't even talk about stickers or 80s pop culture. So we'll just have to oh, do that. Well, that was going to be my funny story, actually. It was uh, about- oh, yeah. We didn't even get to the embarrassing story. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, you can edit it out if you need to. So, okay. Oh, so this, yeah, no, we got to do supposed it. supposed to be the embarrassing vet med story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I was recently at a big conference and I was um, supporting fellow multicultural vet med association board members that were speaking. And so I was like, you know, I'm not normally like a front row kind of person, but I was in the second row from the front 
And uh, a colleague of mine who had just finished speaking sat down next to me. She had just come from the exhibit hall and she, she knew that I love stickers because I'm an 80s kid. And so she handed me a couple stickers while this talk was starting, you know, and and I looked and I said something to her like, are these scratch and sniff? And I don't think she heard me. And so probably there's like generations of people that don't even know what I'm talking about. But essentially, there's stickers <laughs> that look like food or beverages mm-hmm. and then you scratch them and then it smells like it. And yeah. so, like a fool, I just assumed that the tangerine <laughs> I was looking at was scratch and sniff. And so I just like, I wasn't even like, cautious about it. I literally, I took it, Katie, and I was like, <laughs> and I did that. And uh, yeah, it was not a scratch and sniff. And so not only did she see me do it, the people behind me saw me do it. And unfortunately, one of our presenters saw me do it. And she made sure to say it to me right after she got done presenting. She's like, at least she didn't was- say it during. <laughs> well, she, and she could have and I would have owned it. I don't care anymore. So, but, so yes. Uh, so if you ever hand me a sticker that looks like it might be food, I will probably assume it's scratch and sniff and try my best to get some kind of a pleasure out of the scratch and sniff feature. <laughs> you know, I think sticker mule is really missing out on that. Feature. Yeah, they do like hologram stickers, which yeah, I really think but... are cool, but they need to do, they need to bring, I also like, I, I, I also think they need to bring back some version of garbage, garbage pale kid stickers. Yeah. That actually was, I wonder if we could do like, we could do like, yeah, vet med garbage pail kids. Like we could totally figure that out. Oh yeah, what was I, I had? Oh, my one version that I sh- shared with somebody was like anal sack Annie. Like that was. <laughs> Hopefully that one's not scratch and sniff. <laughs> but yeah, I, I totally. I think this is your next side game. Yeah, because you yeah, need another one, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If now if anal sack Annie was uh, a scratch, and, that would be like next level. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking abscesses. I'm thinking like, you know, foxtail, fanny and, or yep. something. Yeah. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of, um, yep. yeah. Like you want to educate the Dolores. next generation about vet med. That's how, that's how you kind of get in there and get them interested. So I'm claiming anyway. dehiscence I have lots Dolores. Of random ideas. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Tina Tran, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Um, I'm glad we kind of almost pretty much throughout the outline because um, I feel like we could probably talk about pretty much anything. So this is, this is really fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. And um, anytime. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on central line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of central line, the aha podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review for more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine. We invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.